If you have your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3. I'm not trying to hide from you. I'm not going to preach from back here, I promise. That would be a weird sermon, wouldn't it? We will get to this. So, uh, if you've not been here with us for a while, uh, we're continuing on walking through kind of our four core values. That's kind of what this thing is all about. If you're curious about it, we got flyers in the back. I'm not going to go over it all again. But what we're walking through right now is this idea of community. What does it mean that God designed us to be a community? How does this whole thing work? And so last week, we kind of just opened up the discussion a little bit to talk about how Jesus really sees his community. And that we said Jesus sees his community as a family. And that to us seems nice and cute and like a nice little gesture. But in Jesus' time, that was radical. Because what Jesus is doing is he's viewing the church as a strong group society. And that was usually what you would find with your family identity in first century Judaism. Uh, But for Jesus, he's saying, hey, no, your core identity is not going to be found in your family. It's going to be found with me. I, I am the way for you to do community. And this was this radical idea. And so today what I want to do is take that and ask why. Why is that the way Jesus expects us to live in community? Why do we need to do that? And to do that, we had to take a few steps back. And I think we find that answer in first understanding this this thing we call the Trinity. So let me just give you some some forewarning here. I am about to uh, see if I can tackle the Trinity in the next like 30 minutes. If you know much about Christian theology, I don't know. We'll see where we land on the other side. So let me me say this. Number one, this is probably going to be one of the most theologically dense sermons I've preached in my entire time here. So if you're not like Mr. You Love Theology nerd out with me, just you can can do it. I promise. Give me 30 minutes. We will get through this. And if you are, you're going to love this. It's going to be so, so much fun. But I was thinking this week about like how, how does one explain the Trinity in 30 minutes? And then also like how does one just explain the Trinity? Because I've had professors and PhD doctors uh, in doctorates in theology that they even would say, you know, I, I know the Trinity is real, but explaining who the Trinity is and, and how the Trinity functions is difficult. And I kind of landed here. here. Here's where I landed. I'm not so much interested in trying to explain the Trinity this morning as I am trying to defend the Trinity from Scripture this morning. So if we can take that kind of viewpoint, I think we'll land in a safer location. So I'm just going to point out some things along Genesis 1 and Matthew 3 and some other places where I think the Trinity is clearly functioning. And then I'll defend it, and then we'll explain why all of this matters to this idea, this this concept we call community. So, you ready? All right. One person's ready. We're going. Um, one, of the, one of the weirdest parts about growing up, I just celebrated my 31st birthday last week, and so one of the funniest, weirdest things is that no one warns you about this. It just kind of hits you like a freight train. You'll have these moments in time where you just realize you were like a carbon copy of one of your parents, and you weren't ready for it. You weren't thinking about it. You're just living life, and it just hits you and knocks you off your feet. Um, so I, I do this thing, and I don't know if it's because, actually, I know exactly why, and I'll get there. But for now, I'll, I'll uh, blame it on my, you know, polite southern heritage that I grew up in. I hate the idea of being an inconvenience to someone. Like, it stresses me out. We were in a small gas station on the way back from Haley's parents yesterday, and it was like a bunch of people, and I just felt like I was in everyone's way, and I could just like feel my blood pressure going up because I'm like, I don't want to inconvenience anyone, much less this person that I don't even know. And this leads me to do this little thing that I call my uh, polite, uh, convenient dance, 
We're like, I want something, but I don't want to make you feel like you, that I have to have it to be happy. So I kind of dance around this idea. So this happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, Haley and her parents and I were on our way to Dallas. And so I, I wanted them to listen to this lecture that I had listened to, this like college lecture that I thought was particularly good. And so we get in the car. I'm like, hey, guys, I have this lecture. I think it's really interesting. I would love to have like your takes on it and to get your opinion on it. But like, I don't want to monopolize the time in the car. So if you really don't want to, like, I understand. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't try to monopolize time. But if you want, then we can. And finally, Haley just stops and goes, Philip, do you want us to listen to it or not? <laughs> yes, I want you to listen to it. We listened to it. Had a great time. Regular uh, occurrence. Except for last week. Uh, we were driving to Clovis, and uh, it was my mom's birthday, so we had called my mom to tell her happy birthday. And part of that conversation goes, Haley's going to go visit them here in a couple weekends, and my mom says, hey, I need my hair recolored. Would you be willing to come do that? And Haley says, yes, of course. Uh, also, last time I did your hair, I put highlights in it. Do you want me to do highlights again? And my mom does this thing where she's like, well, I don't want to inconvenience you. You know, if, if you, that's more stuff that you have to bring, and if you have to do And finally, Haley goes, Mel, do you want me to do highlights or not? And my mom goes, yeah, I want you to do highlights. And it just like hit me like a freight train. Like that's where I get that from. It's her fault. And now it's instilled into my DNA. And like I'm so if I'm ever kind of like dancing around it, just say, Philip, do you want it or not? And then I'll answer you. But sometimes I just have to get. Have you guys noticed this? That the things about you are sometimes instilled into you from something that is outside of you. Usually like your parents or guardians or, or something like that, and love it, hate it, embrace it, shun it, run from it, often characteristics of your parents will find a way to play out in you, and if you're thinking never, wait till you turn 31, and it'll be a good time. And not only is this true about us and our parents or our guardians, this is true about us and God. So A.W. Tozer, famous theologian, one of his most famous quotes is, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he says this because what's true about God is true about us. But the other side of that coin is what we believe to be true about God, whether it's accurate or just skewed or wrong, ends up becoming true in us. If your perception of God is distorted, it will always result in a distorted perception of self. So uh, it's the woman who sees God as this irritated old man just waiting to fling a lightning bolt at her if she wades like gets too much into his lawn. And so she lives in this constant guilt and shame just waiting for the next time that God's going to hurl another lightning bolt. It's the man who sees God as the destroyer of infidels that's willing to strap a bomb to his chest and do the unthinkable. It's the atheist that sees God as non-existent, that sees his life as this temporary pursuit of pleasure by any means possible. It's the prosperity preacher that sees God as the means of wealth and, and health that happily will go to his church and ask for donations for his third jet because that's what God wants me to have is my third jet. And it seems so preposterous to us, and yet it affects us the exact same way. Your perception of God will always control how you see yourself. So is God up for interpretation? And if the answer to that is yes, we have some major problems. Or is there something more clear? Is there a more direct way that we can know God and thereby know the world and ourselves? And obviously I think the answer is yes because I wrote a sermon about it. So if you will open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. 
So often when we jump into Genesis 1, especially kind of modern day context, one of the first things that we start to do is uh, we, we open Genesis 1 and then we want to debate literal seven days, not literal seven days, and we argue. And I'm not saying there's no room for that argument. That's great. We can have that. But I think when that's our primary way of reading Genesis 1, we miss a lot of what God's trying to communicate in Genesis 1. So what I want to do today is just kind of run a little drive-by quick through reading a couple of these texts. I want to ask some questions and point out what I think God's trying to help us understand about him through this creation narrative. Let's start out at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Let me just go ahead and read verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So already... Three verses into the Bible, we find this idea that God in himself is complex. That there are just complexities about God that leads us to have to ask questions and think through this because all of a sudden, it's, it's the creation of the universe and there is one character at play. We call him God, right? Yeah, God. And then, so there's God in the beginning, uh, God created. And then verse 2, and the spirit of God hovers over the deep. I'm like, wait a minute, God Spirit of God, are those the same person? Are those two different persons? Is that like God in two different hats? What's going on there? And then you get to verse 3, and then it's God's words. God speaks and says, let there be light. Does God have to say, let there be light out loud for light to exist? No, God can just will it into existence. He's God. But there's something there about his word. So now we have God's word and God and God the Spirit. And all of this is playing a role in creation. And we're wondering, well, well who is God And I think this is exactly where the Hebrew authors want you to go. So you come to this conclusion that God is complex. And I'm going to have to dive a lot deeper into this if I want to solve some of these equations and figure out some of these conundrums. So we find some more complexities. Jump down to verse 26. God has created the world and he goes to create his apex creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And if you've been in church a while, you've heard this, but that's pretty weird. Because when I talk about myself, I don't often use plural pronouns. So we was thinking the other day, that's weird, right? And all of a sudden, God, reflecting on this creation that he's about to make of man and woman, says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Who's the us? Who's the our? This is something that Hebrew scholars and Jewish scholars have debated for years. Most Jewish people, because they don't believe that Jesus is, in fact, fully God like we do, will look at that and say, ah, it's weird. Maybe he's talking about, like, his entourage of angels. But are we made in the image of angels? No, we're not. We're made in the image of God. And so we, looking back and knowing a little bit about where the Bible goes from here, said, oh, there's something happening there. And this idea, let us make man in our image, God the Father, or God and God the Spirit and God's Word, all three, one. Are you seeing the complexity evolve at this point? Then jump down to verse 27. Verse 27 is the first poem we get in Scripture. In your Bibles, it's probably indented. So we get this little significant three-line poem in the Hebrew. The first line is, so God created man in his own image. So when this says man, what is it talking about? It's talking about us, the, the plural idea of humanity. And then it goes, God created him in the image of God. The Hebrew idea is a singular pronoun. Him is representative of the massive plural humanity. God created him in his image. So how many humanities is there? 
There is one humanity. There is not more than, there is not like humanity and other type. There is one humanity. And then you go in and it says God created them, plural, male and female. So we have one humanity, but how many persons? Two, two persons, one humanity. One humanity, two persons. If you start following this out all the more, and you go to the end of Genesis chapter 2, God's going to come out and he's going to say, hey, this is why a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife as one. So all of a sudden, this image of God creation has some sort of complexity where there's one, but there's two, but there's also one. Are you seeing where I'm going with all of this? Genesis is asking all of these questions and making all of these statements, and we just kind of stand there befuddled at what's happening. I think that's by intention. God wants you to see, hey, I'm complex, but I'm going to begin to reveal who I am to you so that you might know me. See, Genesis 1, in telling us about himself, God chooses not to write a biography or a theology textbook where he says, I am God, I am three in one, one, Father. Instead, God tells us a story. And he starts within the beginning. And that story that's going to open up and it's going to start revealing his complexity that's going to continue to be explored and revealed as the story unfolds more and more and more. But right from the start, right from these first few clues, here's what I want you to understand. Number one, God is eternal. That goes to be without saying he stands above time. Time does not start until he starts it. So God is eternal. But also God is community. God is very happy saying, let us make man in our image, that I, God, am creating, but the spirit God is also creating, but the voice of God is having a role in this as well. And they're distinct, yet they're one. What God is saying is, I am an eternal community. I am an eternal community. And this is really interesting when we start to play this out and layer that over us as humanity. Because if you go through Genesis chapter 1, over and over again, God's going to make a creation, and he's going to look at it, and he's going to say, it is what? This is creation is good. God made the light, and the light was good. He separated the water from the land, and it was good. But if you go to chapter 2, which gives this zoom-in story of how God makes Adam and Eve in his image, God starts off by crafting Adam out of the dust, and he has Adam name the, uh, the animals, and then it notes that there's no one else like Adam, and then God calls this not good. God says that there is only man and no one is like him and this is not good. This is the perfect reality of Eden. There is no sin in the world and God is already calling something not good. What is it that is not good? Isolation. That God sees within the DNA of his creation that we were created to require community and relationship. And so then God creates a helper for Adam and he creates Eve and it unfolds from there. But right from the start, here's what I want you to see. God is complex, God is eternal, God is communal, and we, being made in his image, are created to be in some ways like that, that there's something needed in community. With that in mind, fast forward to Matthew chapter 3. Okay, how you doing? I know, like I said, this is theologically, I am going to draw like a picture up here soon, that'll, that'll be fun, I'm sure. So, but Matthew 3. Matthew 3 is the story of Jesus' baptism. So let me just jump in and read this story to you. I think there's some intentional ties between this story and between the Genesis 1 narrative. So chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, says this. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus saying, John, you, you can baptize me. Then John allowed him to be baptized. And then verse 16, actually it goes 16 and 17 as well. 
When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and the heavens suddenly opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I think in our minds we just read this, and we don't necessarily see the ties all the way back to Genesis, but just track some things with me here. Anywhere else in the Bible that we see a voice speaking from heaven? Genesis 1 seems like a pretty good example. Oh, and Jesus' baptism. We also see this idea of the spirit hovering or fluttering like a dove, that, that Hebrew verb. We've talked about this before if you've been around. The Hebrew verb in Genesis 1, if it's used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, it's always about a bird flying. That's the idea behind a bird fluttering its wings. So the spirit is doing the same thing. And what is it fluttering over? Water. That's what's going on here. We have water and water again. But this time... Jesus is in that water. So we have God the Father speaking about God the Son while God the Spirit hovers in between. And I think what Matthew wants us to understand is at this point in time, God is doing something that he's already done. He's starting a new creation, just like he created in Genesis 1, uh, but this time it's going to involve the reality of God as an eternal community, and there's going to be more. There's going to be something more revealed in this story. So while the infinite complexity of God remains, there are more direct clues to that complexity. And here's what we find. God is not just an eternal community. God is an eternal community of love. God is an eternal community of love. Now, right from the start, we have to define love because our culture has totally just obliterated whatever love means anymore. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, back in the February, the Valentine's Day of 2021, I did a sermon over love, and we define love as wanting the best for someone else, even when it's not the best for you. So this idea that love in its most natural state is self-giving, self-sacrificing. Our culture likes to make love self-focused and turn it in on itself. But when we talk about God's community of love, it is defined by a self-giving, self-generous um, love. This is what the community of God is, an eternal community of love. So we see in this story, God the Father speaks, and he speaks out of this intimate love that's manifested in pure joy. I, I don't mean to humanize this too much, and, and help me if, if not, so it may not all the way work, but I think there's something in this that's somewhat similar to a father that takes his little boy to a baseball game, and his little boy just knocks one out of the park, and the father jumps up and goes, that's my son, and there's just proud love just coming out of the father for his son. And this is the point that God the Father just can't contain it. And he speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. Now, is this an occurrence that just happened? No, this is something that had been going on for all of eternity. And God just lets it out right here. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. There's this intimate love resulting in proud joy. And then God the Son responds with obedient love manifested in glad submission. The story's going to go on to tell all of these things where Jesus is going to say, I don't ever do my will, but I do the will of the Father who sent me. And he's going to be led by the Spirit to go do things, and he's following God. And it all comes to this apex moment where Jesus is in the garden, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. That Jesus returns the love to the eternal Father by obedient submission, by glad submission. 
And and then God the Spirit is ever-present, conveying that love back and forth. So uh, when C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, The union between the Father and the Son is such a love, or such a live, concrete thing, that its union itself is also a person. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and Son is a real person and is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. And if that kind of makes you go cross-eyed a little bit, good. It makes me do that too. So we're in the same boat with all of that. But if you're confused, let me, let me draw this out a little bit. This is when I took theology class. This is how our theology professor and drew it out. You may have seen this before as well. I'll write big for those of you in the back that can see. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the classic way of drawing this out is to draw a triangle between these and to put the phrase is not in this triangle. Again, you may have seen this before. Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. So on and so forth. And then what the drawing does from here is it draws these central lines in and it puts the word is here and you write in the middle is God. This is the classic interpretation of this. I believe it's accurate. I believe it's helpful. But as I was studying this week, I came across a Hebrew scholar, a PhD. His name's Tim Mackey. He's the one that started and runs the Bible Project. So if you're familiar with that stuff, he's kind of done some of this. So his proposal on this is absolutely this is correct. But there may even be a better way to understand this. And here, here's what he does. He takes the word God out of the middle. In the middle, he puts the word love. And then he takes this whole thing. And he says this, this right here, this is God. Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Father. But they are all three one, existing in this eternal community of love. And here's, here's what this means, and here's why this matters. If this is who God is, he's not some old man waiting to strike you down and he's angry. He's not someone that's kind of losing control. Uh, at the center of the universe, there's not a black hole that's just sucking life out of everything. But at the center of the universe is a triune God. And at the center of our triune God is love. That God in his DNA is eternally loving. Because here's the thing about love. Love cannot exist in isolation. Love cannot exist without relationship. If love exists in isolation, it is only a self-focused inward love. And we call that narcissism. That's not what God wants. That's not who God is. This is the problem with uh, Islam. Islam will claim that our God is all-loving. But God is one and alone himself. And so there was a point where Allah existed with no other relationships. So how was Allah love without relationship? This is why the triune God can be the only answer for love. That God has existed from all eternity with all loving. He has existed in this relationship, this community of love. And it's with this eternal community of love that we begin to start seeing what real, authentic community looks like. So uh, another theologian, his name's Mark Shaw, he gives four uh, what he calls essential truths to the Trinity. He says, number one, there's full equality. So 
neither of these are more God than the other. The Father is just as much God as the Son, who is just as much God as the Holy Spirit. They are fully, fully equal. But in the midst of this full equality is also, too, glad submission, that the Holy Spirit submits to the Son, who submits to the Father. Now, that's not a commentary on their value or their godliness. That is a commentary on their order. So there's full equality, yet glad submission. There is eternal joyful intimacy where they love one another and they relate to one another and they create out of the goodness of one another. But in their joyful intimacy, there is still mutual difference. There are key differences in the three persons. This is God. And I wish there was like a way that I could like spin this around because this is God constantly in motion. Before time began, this is how God exists. This is why scripture can say with confidence that God in himself, without any of us, is love. God did not gain more love by creating the universe, nor did he lose love by creating the universe. He created the universe out of an extension of his love. This is why the Bible is going to go on throughout the New Testament, displaying this community of love in ways that both annihilates our categories and totally affirms this as reality. Uh, the early church fathers in Greek, they called this the perichoresis. So, so peri is the word around, the prefix, so perimeter, right? And choresis is where we get our word choreography. It means to dance. I know I'm talking about dancing too much in a Baptist sermon here. Um, but, but the way this gets translated in some ways is what's called the divine dance. That when you read through scripture, you find this kind of divine dance going on. It goes, it goes something like this. Matthew chapter 1, uh, G, uh, the angel is saying to Joseph, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Jesus. Or, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. So yeah, is short for Yahweh. Shua is saves. If you've been here, we've talked about this already. So his name is going to be God saves. Well, who is it that's going to save? Yeshua or Yahweh? Yes. And he's going to go on and say, and not only that, but they'll call him Emmanuel or Emmanuel. Imanu is with us. El is God. So th this Jesus, his name is also going to be called God with us. Wait, who, who's with us? Is it Jesus with us or is it God with us? Yes. And Matthew just loves doing this. He's doing this all the time. When you go to Matthew 28, uh, Jesus is getting ready to, to leave and he's going to give his final great commission. So he's going to say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. And the name is singular. One single name, and he says, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. And then Jesus, right after that, is going to say, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. And then what does Jesus do? He goes and sits at the right hand of the Father. Is Jesus lying? No, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you by sending my Spirit, but it's also me, and it's also my you're seeing the divine dance at play in, in Scripture. This is all just swirling about, and we're caught up in the middle of it. John 14, 16, Jesus will say, I will ask the Father, and he will send the Holy Spirit, or he will send the Counselor. And then just two verses later, he's going to say, I will not leave you. I will come to you. This is the song that we just sang, Jesus, um, come and fill your, your lambs, right? Wait, is it Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is it God the Father or God the Son? Yes, because it is all God existing in an eternal community of love. How you doing? All right. Okay, we're, we're done with the heavy theology part. Let me see if I can draw this all in to, to a point for you. Thank you for that. I hope that was fun for you. I love stuff like this. Here's what I want you to understand from all of this, though. God has not given us a line-for-line -line biography God has not given us a theology textbook. 
God has given us a story. And in this story, he has continually revealed himself more and more, all coming to climax in the person of Jesus. And it is in the life of Jesus, in the way Jesus speeches, uh, speaks of the Father and of the Spirit, it's in the teachings of Jesus that we can really start to piece together this reality that God is an eternal community of love. But, but there's more here. Because this God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing in an eternal loving community, is dead set on inviting you into this community. He wants you to experience this loving community that he has lived in from eternity. In fact, he designed you to need that sort of community. So follow the logic out, right? Number one, God is an eternal community of love. Number two, you are made in God's image. Therefore, number three, you were made for a community of love. You were created for communities of love. It is necessary for what it means to be human. Which first begins by joining God's triune community that he invites you into. But then quickly extends to participating in a mirror community of him right here, right now that we call the church. It's this community that starts in Genesis 1 to Matthew 3 all the way to right now. So God, the three-in-one eternal community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creates the universe out of an extension of that eternal love. And out of the entire universe that he makes, only one creation is made uniquely to bear the image of that eternal God himself. But that image gets tainted through a thing we call sin and rebellion. And sin's goal is always to pull us further from that image, to always distract us and divide us and pull us away from who God created to be. So while God uh, draws us into his image of fulfilled relationship within community, sin isolates us into individualism. While God's image draws us to be other-focused in full, real love, sin distorts love and points it inside of ourselves and ostracizes and hates those who disagree. While God's image draws us into a close relationship with him, sin causes us to separate and hide from him. This is right at the beginning of Genesis 3. Adam Eve sin, and what's the first thing they do? They hide from God. Sin takes us away from God. And that sin is entrenched into each and every one of us, constantly trying to deprive us of who and what God has created us to be. So does God just say, well, it's a lost cause and I have just enough love right here with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm not going to worry about that. No, that's not how the story goes. The story goes that God is going to relentlessly chase after humanity that has rebelled against him, constantly inviting humanity back into this that you can come experience the triune, eternal community of love. He invites us back into the perichoresis. He invites us back into the divine dance. God invites us to live within his eternal community of love. This is what we call the gospel. So Romans 5.8 can say, God has proved this love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still ostracized in a way, what did Jesus do? He died for us that God in the full act of self-giving gives himself so that we could be welcomed into his community. 
It's the Father's intimate love for the Son given to save us. It's the Son's obedient love for the Father submitting to his will. It's the Spirit's communication of that love that lives within us, drawing us into this eternal community of love. And if the only thing I've really accomplished this morning is just like totally overwhelming you and you're just like, I don't understand, again, great, wonderful Because that's the first step of grappling with the infinite complexity of God and the immeasurable love he has for you and he has for us. And it's only as we explore this reality that we can begin to comprehend God's vision for First Baptist Church of Portales. God's vision for community. Because, like we said at the beginning, your perception of God will always control your perception of self. So we must understand God. And the better we understand God, and the better we understand this eternal community of love, the better we understand how we communicate and love one another. So remember those four key truths we talked about? They're up on the screen still, so you should. Take those and layer them right over us. If God is fully equal in glad submission, joyful intimacy, and mutual differences, what are four markers of a godly church? Well, A godly church should have full equality. We were created in full equality. And I mean that from every single person in this room to the person you walk by at Walmart and you just can't be around them because they smell so bad. And it still doesn't change the fact that they were equally created in the image of God. It doesn't matter how far sin has taken them away from God. It doesn't matter what they identify as. None of that matters. They are still created in the image of God. There is full equality. But even in the midst of full equality, there is still the necessity of glad submission. This is the most difficult thing we have in our modern Western society. We, we don't like to submit. We don't like to be told what to do. But understand within the DNA of God himself, submittance is never a commentary of value. It's a commentary of order. And so that's true with your professors at school. That's true with your bosses at work. That's true with your parents at home. That's true with leadership at church. There is a glad submission. So it's loving and living like Jesus, who even will say, I came not to be served, but to serve. So we submit our opinions and our thoughts and our desires and our wants and our needs to the truth of God's word. There is full equality, but there's also glad submission. We were created for joyful intimacy, this vulnerability of knowing and be known, of loving and being loved, to share in that together. And yet we still can have mutual differences. We were created to be mutual different. You don't have to like the same things I like. It's pretty cool. God doesn't make you do that. And while there is a a literal thing that we hold to in the fact of who God is, outside of that, God has given so much liberty of the things we can take joy in. In fact, this is God's vision in the New Testament. That his church would consist of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So the church should be full equality, glad submission, joyful intimacy, and mutual difference. This is what we're going to break down more over the next few weeks. But what do we do now? This is where we'll close out. God has invited you into his divine dance. He's invited you to experience the eternal love that has existed since before time began between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
And really what he's inviting you to is just to come and accept that invitation to die to yourself, to deny yourself, and embrace this eternal community of love, to trust yourself to the grace of the Son, living in the relationship to the Father through the personified love of the Spirit. And then we share that with one another. And this can play out in so many different ways, and I'll just give you a few ideas. Maybe that's today just coming back to that. God, I've been trying to do my own thing in my own ways, and it's only resulted in my isolation, and I need to come back. Maybe it's signing up for a ministry team in the back. God, I just want to join up with what you're doing, and if what you're doing through this church is, is godly, I, I want to be a part. I, I want to sign up for something. Maybe it's making this community more of a priority. Maybe it's seeking to build more intimate, vulnerable relationships with other people within the church. Maybe it's asking someone to coffee and saying, hey, I, I just want to explore this Jesus thing a little bit more. Can you help me with that? Maybe it's to seek out a better understanding of who God is. Maybe it's just to be overwhelmed and say, God, you are huge and I am small. I just need to think about this. Maybe it's to worship. Maybe it's to pray. But see, the thing is, we get to be a community of love because God is a community of love. We get to experience eternity because God has invited us into eternity. The reason First Baptist exists is not because we think church is a really cool idea that we're supposed to do, and that's what good Americans do. It's because this is how God created the world, and we want to be just like him. So how do you become more like him? Father God, we thank you for... This morning, and I thank you for the patience of a church that's willing to, to sit and just explore the massive complexity that is your grace and goodness. And God, I pray that you would just help us to understand 